Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc. through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome back to Dermalogs, Season 5. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a full-time academic dermatologist who works in Halifax at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside of your centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that by helping you, the dermatology residents, get answers from leading experts across the country. This season, we're taking a deep dive into complicated medical dermatology, talking to leading dermatologists about how they diagnose and treat complex cases and conditions. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Neil Shear joining us to talk about toxic epidermal necrolysis slash Steven Johnson syndrome, a severe drug eruption. Dr. Neil Shear is a recently retired dermatologist and professor emeritus at the University of Toronto's Temerty Faculty of Medicine, divisions of dermatology, clinical pharmacology, and toxicology. Before his retirement in 2021, Dr. Shear spent 16 years as director of the Division of Dermatology at the U of T, as well as holding a number of leading roles at Sunnybrook and Women's College Hospital in Toronto. And he's a fellow podcaster, hosting his own dermatology podcast called Shear Listening Pleasure. Neil, welcome to Dermalogs. Thank you very much. It's great to see you. Uh, it's great to see you as well. I, you know, I don't know if some of our podcast listeners are aware, but we do use a platform where we are able to see each other, um, which is really nice because it's easier to have a conversation when you're seeing your colleague um, than when you're simply on a phone or, or listening. So um, I, I don't think I've ever said that, actually. So, uh, Neil, thank you so much for joining me. And for those of you I don't know if there's any dermatology resident in Canada that's not heard of Dr. Shear, but maybe a very junior one hasn't. But if you haven't, um, let me tell you that Dr. Shear has a significant amount of experience in severe cutaneous adverse reactions, uh, world expert on this topic. And so I couldn't think of anyone better that we could talk to about this. Um, and so I'm just going to dive right in maybe, uh, Neil, and ask you some questions. So... I think one of the things from a resident perspective and, and even actually as an attending staff, you know, that call that you get that's um, sick patient in the eMERGE, sloughing skin, and you're kind of going, oh man, is this, is this SJSTN? Is this a severe cutaneous reaction? What are the first kind of thoughts that come into your mind when you, when you get that, when you used to get that call? And what kind of questions maybe were you thinking of early on to determine how quickly you needed to see a patient, for example? Gee, that's, that's a really great question. And, you know, all of this stuff looks so easy to people who don't do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, like a magician pulling the uh, rabbit out of the hat. But there, there is a process. And, and I'll tell you, over the years, as you kindly put them, but uh, the many, many years of looking after some of these patients in burn units and in the ICU, et cetera, uh, as well as global connections. When I've been working lately, it's been in uh, safety uh, related to clinical trials. Yeah. And, and what I've learned from that was clinicians, uh, people who run these trials, et cetera, really don't understand the process. And the process is very simple. It's got to be simple. Otherwise, people won't do it. Diagno diagnosis, causality. That's the questions. Everybody wants to play this game like, oh, you know, maybe it's this or I think it's that. So what the hell is that about? You can't <laughs> do that. It's what's the diagnosis? And if the diagnosis has a differential, then you put the differential in with the diagnosis. And then you go back with that information and think about the causality. 
you know, okay, yes, they were on this drug, but they only took it for one day, or it was prescribed and they never actually took it, or there's something really, you know, going on elsewhere. And people think that, you know, you just look at it, and you play a game guessing what it is. And, and, and I have to admit, there's a few times in our intensive care unit, I'm looking in the burn unit, and there's a patient there, we can't figure out what caused her toxic epidermal narcolysis, we're thinking about it. And I asked the resident um, who's, a, who's a, a burn unit resident, I said, was she ever on such and such a drug? And he goes, no, I couldn't find that. It bothers me. I think she must have been. Nothing could have done this like that. And then when it ends up, you're right, of course. Then, but that, that kind of magic happens. But, but that's not the reality. The reality is you have to really think, what's my diagnosis? What's my differential diagnosis? And then what are the types of, of causality? Those two things will start to give you a direction to move on and, and to help people. And, and to deal with their family and all the other issues and survivors. I mean, there's so many issues they are lost. I think that's huge. And I definitely want to come back to that um, at the end, because I think that really is important. And for the residents to realize it's not just that acute period when you're seeing the patient and hopefully having them survive. It's all of the long-term sequelae that come from many of these conditions that you know really do require um, more than just, okay, great, you lived, okay, have a good day. So, okay, here, I want to like back it up to, you get the patient, they're in the ICU or they're in the burn unit or they're in the eMERGE um, and you're there, like you're the resident, you're going to assess the patient. Um, we often get, you know, you hear, hear the keywords like they're sick, they've got a positive Nikolsky. Um, what is your general, um, like what would be your tips in terms of the clinical assessment when you go to see the patient like, how are you not forgetting to look in areas? Or are you just like a fully head to toe? Like, how would you approach it for the patient? Yeah, it's really, it is hard. I mean, you have people who are flown in from long distances who pretty well are so blistered up. They're in their 80s. They're not going to make it. And right. you have to be prepared for what that ex- conversation is going to be that usually is in a burn unit. And um, I still like to see them afterwards, especially if they want. They often... Mm-hmm. If, if there was no survivor, then the family generally don't want, in my experience, to have any more to do with us. But, and, and that happens. And, and there's so, there aren't specialists everywhere who can do this. Uh, but they come in and, uh, you know, I go to the emergency. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, and I guess it depends how dedicated people are, but in the beginning, when our burn unit was moved from one part of Toronto to Sunnybrook, uh, I went to speak to the guy who was the new head of Sunnybrook, who was a surgeon from uh, Germany in the U.S. And uh, I said, listen, uh, call me uh, if there's a case. So, well, it could be two o'clock in the morning. I said, call me. And uh, so after four or five of those, you know, calls it in the, in the middle of the night, you know, then they said, well, it's okay. You can come tomorrow. Uh, but they didn't believe it, you know, and, but I wanted to see them. And then when you see them, they take you, you to go into the room where they strip off the skin. And I think that's still very controversial, whether that's the right thing to do or not. Uh, there are people who are you know, strippers, if you will, and people who are not. And, um, but you know what? You have to go with you know, your community and see how they do stuff. Nobody likes being told they're doing it wrong. And, and even if you show them you know, evidence or whatever, it may not help. You just want to see these people survive. And, and that their pain is controlled and everything is done nicely. Um, 
And then you want to be able to communicate with the family about what's going on and, and how serious this is. Uh, and, and that when they recover, you know, it could take months to years for them to recover, not just emotionally, but physically. The, the, you know, to get energy back into your body uh, is not easy. And uh, there's so many different variations and then eye problems. And, uh, and you know, and, and that's, there, there are, you know, advances in the area of, of fixing the cornea uh, in different ways. But, you know, the, the one nugget there was at one of our meetings, the guy at Harvard who was the um, eye doc, uh, who's a specialist in this area, says, you know, uh, if you see these changes around the lids, uh, if you will, then uh, you've got to do something immediately. And uh, just like people forget, you know, the eye involvement, you know, we would use the uh, placental type stuff and, and that mm. really saved lives. And, and people really kept it on the entire time they were in hospital uh, if that areas were involved. And, um, and, and they not only survived, but they had, you know, you know eye things that worked. Actual vision. Well, I I remember when I first, like years ago, the first amniotic uh, membrane transplant that they did in our center was this big process, took them five hours. Um, And then recently, a couple months ago, we had a a bad TEN and took them 10 minutes. They just pop it in, snap, snap. Um, In terms of other people that you want involved, ophthalmology, gynecology, would you just pan consult right from the beginning? Or did was that part like that's part of the algorithm that we have here in Nova Scotia? Say, okay, call ophthalmology, call gynecology if it's a female, um, or urology. Did you do that too? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll tell you, I'll use the gynecology one as an example. And the concern, of course, is the inflammation there ends up scarring and you you lose um, a big part of your social life, if you will, and, and, and your own psyche, et cetera, uh, because it's it's devastating. And so the guy in Harvard, his comment was, if you see something, do something. And right. uh, that was for the eye. And, and I feel the same for the, for the genitals. Uh, what we did there was we would ask gynecology to come and see them. Okay. It was in the protocol. So gynecology sends up sometime later in the day, um, most junior uh, person uh, on the planet to go see how everything is. And, um, and then they leave. They say, well, we'll see you tomorrow, right? No, 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 we can't come back. We're too busy. We don't have time to come back. Well, that's no use at all. It was absolutely no use at all. It's, it's insulting to everybody, but it's frankly, I think, insulting to humanity. Uh, it's a horrible thing. And so how do we get it to do? You know, what can we do? So I, I, I created a protocol where I said, here's what I want to do in the burn unit. Um, when they come in, they need to be examined. A woman needs to be examined in uh, the vaginal area and um, topical steroids need to be put on. And so what we would do is we would take a tampon, soak yes. it with, uh, you know, Clobetazole. And, yeah. Yep. ointment on a, on a pad uh, to be put in. And then I would say, and it has to be changed daily. Now it doesn't have to be changed daily. It's the only way to get them to come to see them is to say it has to be changed daily. And then the nurses, because then it's in the hands of the nurses. And the nurses go, oh, yes, we have to do this. We have to change it. I'm like, absolutely. So, you know, what about steroid atrophy? The nurses aren't worried about steroid atrophy. They're doing this because they can see the inflammation and they can see the the healing process. Uh, So you've got to have the right person on the team. Uh, But sometimes you have to come up with different ways of explaining why you're doing it. You know, it's like when I was learning stuff 
from Bob Lester, uh, who now is is in your hands. But you know, Bob, I think it was Bob. So we would go see people in the geriatric wing, and we wanted them to lie on their side because they had bed sores. Uh, but nobody ever did it. So what we would do is we put up a fan or a heater or something, a, an instrument that says they need to be exposed to this these this pink light for uh, one hour every day. Well, they did it all the time. And it was baloney. It was just to get people to do what they need to do. You have to put it in a construct that makes sense to their life and their perceptions. And you know, I don't have time to do this every day. Oh, no, here, I'm putting this piece of machinery up. That's important. Thinking about like directed treatments to stop the process, because you were talking about like diagnosis and like halting basically the process. Um, I know over the years, things have changed a little bit with respect to different algorithms or different protocols for SJSTEN. I know here our protocol basically is cyclosporin, a Tanercept, plus minus IVIG, um, and I know that steroids kind of come in and out of favor over the years, but what has been the protocol um, at Sunnybrook? What did you guys use there? One of the very big studies years ago was that uh, th- these therapies can work. And, uh, you know, if you can avoid getting too high on steroids, then you're probably, you know, you get to a point, but it might contribute to it without a doubt. Um, and And some of the other things, uh, again, there's there's more beliefs, but you know one of the slides that I like showing a group is saying you know here's here's the scientific evidence from the group in Taiwan who are really did and have continued to do wonderful studies in this field, um, you know to look at it and, and also to understand the uh, you know again it, it, it doesn't matter if you're living in Taiwan or born in Taiwan you carry the same risk wherever you go. And, and there's going to be different risks in different countries. Um, some of them, uh, when they get into the therapeutics and all that stuff, like in Singapore, uh, did a great job in trying to get the government to see that the proper therapy and screening, et cetera, for the genetic risk uh, was, was important, uh, not just for diagnosis, which it is, but also for getting the family involved. And they created a model where they could show not only where there are fewer people getting specific drugs from, you know, and, and getting reactions, not only were they getting the, uh, less and, and doing better, but it was saving them money in the long run. And so the government was like, yeah, this is saving us money. So I, I think people really need to look at that genetic aspect and, and how you, know, you get it, the family to, to understand that. And usually, I love going down to the... ER myself and, you know, listening to a story from a, a doctor, a nurse, a patient, uh, whatever, and go, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I don't know. This doesn't make any sense. Um, but, you know, they often blame. So they get one drug, they take that drug, they get a second drug, and then they get a reaction. So right. they say, oh, it had to be the second drug. I said, they run the second drug for about four seconds, and they run mm-hmm. the other drug for a week and a half. It's got to be the other drug. Oh, no, no, it can't be. I can't, it can't be. So what are you talking about? I am telling you what it is. And so it's nice to be able to go back to the genetics and say, look, we did a genetic screen. These are the risks that you have. And here's what it means. And it, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're born in Taiwan or you're living in Canada uh, mm-hmm. and you're still Taiwan, you still have the same risk a Taiwanese person does. And, and for a certain drug. So we have to be able to give people very um, 
good advice early on and, and to take control of it again. Uh, it, it's, I think anybody who's going to see somebody more than once, you know, you see a patient then you see another patient. The second time you're not going to walk away. And the second time you're going to go, okay, I've got to go back and make sure they're actually doing what we agreed to do. Thinking about the drugs, and I think you mentioned this too, like a lot of times these drugs aren't, it's not that they're prescribed by dermatology. Some are some culprit drugs, but m- most of the time, you know, we come in because they're prescribed for whatever reason, gout or otherwise. Um, just, you know, for the residents, worst, top worst drugs in your mind that seem to be the ones that really you should be proceeding with caution. I, I think all my TENs in the last decade have been related to lamotrigine, but obviously that's not the only one. So like, what are your, like, these drugs are bad. Like, what are your bad drugs? Well, you know, of course I'll talk about Litt's book, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I I should do that. I don't want to get in trouble. You should talk about Litt's book. I don't have one physically. It's probably online now, but yeah. Yeah. You can get it online, which is good because then there's actual real time updates. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, people look at it and go, oh, there's 75 drugs that have been have been, you know, and then when you look at the list and you start to bring it down, you go, well, wait a minute. Um, we have like some real candidates here, but sometimes, mm-hmm. and especially if a person's really sick or you don't have a good witness, uh, it, it, it's, it's like the, this TV show house, you know, you have to have somebody go break into the home and, and see that they had a, a jar of carbamazepine there that they had just <laughs> ta- started, you know, three weeks ago. And, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of them, people do stuff with a low dose going up and, and that probably does help, but it, all it does is delay the actual reaction. We've seen that in drugs and development. They'd say, well, listen, Dr. Shiver, we're worried about this drug because it looks like this. What if we just started off with a low dose and worked up? I said, no, you, you may be able to, you know, see less and at least you'll feel good about it. And you will know what they're taking because you should give that in like a pillbox sort of thing that, you know, allows it to say, okay, here's here's my protocol for the next week. Um, but people are going to get it. We'll probably eventually get it anyways. Do you think that's a real... So that's actually a question that comes up a lot. You know, you'll get consulted. You'll see a patient that has just a classic morbilliform eruption. It's due to, you know, cephalosporin. There's no red flags. You're just like, this is going to go away whether you keep taking the drug or not. Um, and people will often say, well, could this become TEN? And my answer is always like, no. Um, but I think pathophysiologically, sometimes people find that hard to wrap their heads around. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, listen, there's, when we were doing all these big studies in Europe that ended up being this New England Journal paper, and, and we were looking at all of the data and it was blinded and it was a big fancy study. Um, but, you know, every now and then maybe, and, and I'm talking, this was about a five or six year study. And for tens of thousands of people, it was a huge study. And then when we got together as a group and people were presenting cases that we should talk about, and uh, it was something like you were saying that it would be like, no, that couldn't be. And, and then they would get into a fight. Uh, that was a fun thing about these European studies. They couldn't wait to get into a fight. And, and they would get into a fight about it. And, but that, that's what made it real. There's always like one outlier story. You say, I saw a person who got this. They took it again and they were fine. Or yeah. vice versa, you know, like whatever. And you go, okay. That doesn't take away anything. It just supports that. Yeah, that anecdotal thing doesn't mean that people with morbilliform eruption are going to develop an SJS. Yeah, Yeah, we see people with giant bully and other people have little small bully. True. Does it make a difference? Not really. People are different. And what's going on in that, you know, layer of the skin and that person at that moment, who knows? 
But, you know, you'll see some cases. And I remember seeing them at these meetings first. And then I come back and I'm called to see a patient and say, oh, my God, I know what they have. You know, they had these big giant bullae and everybody was, you know, looking at all kinds of different possibilities because it did not look like toxic epidermal narcolysis, mm. but it was. Well, and I think that's another two things. One, I was just going to say my general approach with with that with a drug eruption is I stop every, every and any drug that's not actively keeping a patient alive at that moment. So I'm like, let's get rid of everything, and then let's bring let's then let's look at it with a lens. But what do you? Um, so there's a lot of overlap with TEN too. I think there's just like sort of lupus like TEN. Mm-hmm. There's now this this perm or whatever you want to call it, this like delayed, slow immunotherapy in cancer patients, TEN. And I think that can be really challenging because it's not always look like there are some morphologic features, but then there's some features that are not. So I think that's a real challenge for, at least for me, I, I don't know. I, th- and- I think for everybody and, you know, the, the, the kind of global studies that are going on now um, are, are usually just opinion pieces, like everybody sort of votes and you know, those things, which is, which is fun. It's fun to see a little bit. You talk about it with people and then it gets published in one of the major journals, but it doesn't really help you to answer your question. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I think it does. It, it just supports that. Yeah. Sometimes we just don't understand it or, you know, what is the complexity going on? This is where the genetics, but things like genetics might be helpful in being able to stratify people appropriately and give family better advice. Um, and that's why I like to give a, a very positive, you know, one of the things that came out a while ago was like a little home unit that somebody could use to, uh, and, it's, and it's in countries all over the world, uh, and was actually um, from psychiatry, uh, looking at anxiety, getting over those, how to deal with that. And you can do that. There are apps for that now. And, and you can go on that app. Now, I found when I gave that to people, they liked the idea, but most of them at that point said, no, it's okay. I know what to do. I know what to do. Uh, one of the saddest cases was weird. It was a, a, a young lady from Saskatchewan who had, a, a, and, and they made a wonderful diagnosis. She was out in the boonies and got her down into um, the city and, and, and she survived. And so we had a meeting of, of people who wanted to come in and just talk about their disease. And she came with her family. Uh, so they were in Toronto now. and. Um, and, and, and she had like survivor's guilt. I mean, here she sees these people who are wearing glasses and who are, you know, burns all over their body and horrible. And, and she looked fine. And, you know, I mean, so anything can happen, if you will. You know, you, you can't walk away from this unscathed. And of course, her, her parents must be terrified. Uh, you know, what about children? What about, uh, you know, offsprings and, and all these sorts of things? And what about their uh, siblings? Uh, you know, it's, it, it affects the whole culture of that family. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think it really has a significant impact and people are really unwell acutely. Um, what I was just going to ask, though, was to do you think, do you, would you advocate for biopsy always or like peeling off the top of a bulla when you see a patient for to say, do you think this is TENSJS? Like, I, I know there's times where I do a biopsy, but a lot of times I don't because I'm like, nah, clinically, that's what this is. and We're going to treat it. But what are your thoughts on like need for biopsy in these conditions? I, you know, I think if you can do a biopsy and, and you know, and, and unlike our burn unit, just put the tissue in the freeze in the fridge and uh, leave it there for a week or two. Um, but but if you actually you know are in a position where you can get tissue, 
I think it's worthwhile. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be, at the end of the day, um, a negative thing. Um, and, and sort of, and, and again, you know, trying to get access to certain therapies, et cetera, uh, you know, it might be nice to have something that says, yes, and this supports our clinical diagnosis. Right. And I think that's a fair point because I, um, I guess what I was thinking is there's times where people come in very early, they're on a culprit drug. So they're on lamotrigine or carbamazepine or allopurinol or septra, and they have this, they're not feeling great. Their CRP is elevated. They've got a little early sloughing. Um, but I, I find sometimes it's really hard, especially in young people to tell, is this going to go down a, um, an SJSTEN? Is this an infectious process? Sometimes if there's no sloughing or blisters yet, this drug hypersensitivity and like, where does one start and what, I guess the big question is, is it all the same thing? Not infection, but is it all the same thing? Is like drug hypersensitivity, does that roll into SJS or are they, in your mind, are they completely separate entities for which, you know, you, you manage them differently? I don't know. Like I, I have a hard time with that sometimes. Well, it is, it's challenging. I mean, the hard, I, I would say it is all part of a package. And, um, you know, you see these things and you're trying to think about what it is. And so, again, it's diagnosis. And you look at the diagnosis and you say, well, it could be this. It could be that. It could be this. Um, then you might say, well, then I do want to do a biopsy and see and uh, see if somebody can get frozen sections for you or something so that, you know, you get some sort of quick response. Um, and then you may look back and say, you know, they were in carbon mazepine before. They tolerated it. They were off it. They came back on it. It looks like it is the carbamazepine or, as you mentioned, those any of those other drugs. And, you know, when you sit down with groups like we do virtually um, uh, now and, and you hear their stories, uh, oh, my God, they're heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, you don't want to leave any stone unturned. I mean, you don't want to, well, it could be this, it could be that, that. You know, it's just nice to say, look, we're going to do a package of things because we want to make a diagnosis. And when we yeah. make a diagnosis, then we'll tell you which drugs could have caused it, and we'll give them a ranking. And yes. um, and that's what I do again in uh, in general teaching. Say to people, you know what? I, I, here's what I do. I tell people that um, you know I think this was the culprit drug, uh, but I'm, I'm giving it a, a rating. So I think it's the culprit drug, maybe fifteen percent likely, and then there may be another percent likely of something else or a combination of two or three things that might also have one. And at the end, I say, or I just don't know because there's information I never got. There's information I don't think. I mean, for a legal perspective, it's always worth to one, leave something at the end that says, I don't know. I never heard that. I didn't know that, that you had that result or whatever. Um, and, and, also to uh, be able to have it quantitatively. So when you make up these percents, you make them up. Mm -hmm. People don't care if you make up numbers. They care. You're sitting down talking to somebody, you're in a, maybe a coffee at work, and say, oh, listen, we have a patient, we think they have TN. You know, what do you think? Do you think uh, they can have sugar in them and milk in their coffee? Like, who knows? They talk about stuff, you go, what are you talking about? That's baloney. <laughs> talk has no effect except in a podcast like this, but yeah. then it, it lasts to haunt you forever. But, <laughs> but but for these other ones, you say, no, 
I write back, I say, well, thank you very much. I reviewed the information I had. Um, here's the information I didn't have. And, and here's what my, my thinking is. And I say, here are the top priorities that I would say are likely to have been the cause. Here are other things that could have been considered. Maybe the diagnosis isn't that. And the other one is, I don't know. And then you make it add up to 100%. And yes. I will tell you, people believe it, especially if it adds up to 100%. They believe it. They go, oh, okay, it could be these things. Because And the example I used is from somebody in California years ago who sent me something. Dear Neil, I've never met this person. Dear Neil, we have a case of this blah, blah, blah. And um, so I used that. I go, the information they gave me was absolutely useless. I think I knew the gender of the patient and everything they gave me was like chit chat over a, a quick, you know, Tim's Horton. I, I, you know, it was like, really? This is what you sent me. So I write back. I, it's like anything. You write back and you say what you want to say. It's got nothing to do with what they said. I don't have to say what you sent me is garbage, you fool. I say, yes. here's the way I look at it. And that's why that numerical approach. And then it's, you can change it. So you get some new advice that comes in that says, oh, she wasn't allopurinol. And then, okay, that changes it. It changes it. Now you say, now, now here's my thing. So that kind of stuff, not only from a legal point of view, but from a clinical care point of view, uh, I, I think is really doesn't take long and, and it's, it's easy to do. And the next person who picks up the chart or whatever the, uh, from you can look at this and go, oh, okay, now I see what they were thinking. I can understand why. But now that we know this about this patient or maybe this new drug or something, we know a little more. So th those things give you handle on it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really helpful way to frame it. Say like, what's the percentage likelihood that it's this drug versus this drug versus other. Um, and then I think, you know, for first treatments, I generally in my mind think, okay, well, if it's SGSTN versus if it's a severe drug hypersensitivity versus whatever, that probably as long as they have normal renal function, I can give them cyclosporin. And I kind of now give out a Tanercept always because I feel like one shot of a Tanercept is very unlikely to cause any problems for anybody. So, um, and then I hope I shut it down, but I think, you know, beyond that, sometimes it gets tricky when you're deciding, do I add, you know, do I add steroids? Do I add IVIG? Like what's the background? And I don't know if you have any advice on that. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's different every time you look at the literature almost. Um, I, you know, and, and again, the in vitro studies, in vivo studies where they took cells and all that stuff, you, you do get a sense that it looks like it has a structure. But um, I, I think it's not necessarily that clear cut yet. You know, we just don't have the definitive, you know, this is the right one for you. And uh, yeah, even in a big study, again, when you look at the gender differences, uh, whatever their health is, um, uh, you know, other uh issues. There's just so much diversity there. You know, it's, it's hard to really be dogmatic about it, but that's not true. It's hard to be dogmatic and sleep with that. I mean, there are people who are dogmatic for sure, but to, to be able to Whether do that, yeah. Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. One of the things that happens, I do find too, like during the acute phase when patients are admitted to burn unit or whatever, um, is that concept that, you know, patients that have significant sloughing are at risk for secondary herpetic infections or bacterial infections. Um, and the idea of like sentinel swabbing or regular viral or bacterial swabbing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like I tend to do that because 
patients will, or, you know, ICU dogs will go, no, 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 it's going to be contaminated. But I find it's generally not. And then if they do have a lot of colonization, I have a pretty low threshold to treat any secondary infections. But what's your thoughts on it? No, I agree with you. I think that's a great approach. I, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, throw it away. And, uh, it, you know, if, if it's something that you've done, you're comfortable with, and now you know what the outcomes are, that sometimes it clearly, you know, must be a drug, uh, you know, then you're leaning that way as a higher percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about the percentage r- rule, uh, then, you know, you, you sort of get a sense of where these things are and how they keep shifting over time. And, uh, you know, new information comes in, patients, you know, change over time. Um, and, and, you know, j- just because l- l- people will get calls all the time. I, I saw that when I was a resident at Sick Kids. you know, oh, so-and-so had a Dilantin uh, reaction. It looks like it's TEN. And while I'm reading the chart, the nurse comes in. Actually, it wasn't a nurse. It was one of the ID nurse. And, and, and comes in, looks at the patient, walks out one second later and says, no, it's from the Alipur. It's from that. It's, it's from the drug. It's got nothing to do with, uh, with, with anything bigger. It's like, oh, okay. And it was true. She was yeah. exactly right. So, you know, sometimes we worry about stuff and it doesn't turn into anything. But mm-hmm. other times, you know, you don't want to miss the eyes. You don't want to miss the genitals. You don't want to miss any area. Um, and, uh, and it isn't just, it isn't your normal, you know, what you're taught in med school type stuff. Right. Yeah. But it does come up on exams. One of the residents didn't want to come in because it was the middle of the night, one of my calls. And I said, look, this is a great case for you. You should, you, you, you must come in. And, and she did, and she was grumbling about it. But then I asked her questions and we had a discussion about it. And then sure enough on her exams comes up this TEN case and she, she wrote to me, she, she's in the States now, but she wrote and said, thank you so much. That was so great. <laughs> I had all these things to talk about. And at the end, they were asking me for advice. You know, Well, that's, so, you, can't, uh, you can't overestimate, I don't think, the benefit of seeing things and managing it because it really just sticks in your brain. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of thoughts just, or a couple other questions too, just about the, the acute management portion, which dressings always come up. And again, like I find often we're fighting with wound care um, or the surgeon or whatever, about what dressings are appropriate. And my personal feel is minimum dressing changes, um, you know, lots of gelinet or Vaseline. I just kind of like coat them and, and wrap them and leave it and only change it once a day just to minimize that, um, you know, minimize the, uh, disrupting the skin. But I find sometimes my, you know, plastics colleagues are trying to do half strength beta Dean and they're doing all this other stuff. And um, what are your thoughts on dressings and TEN acutely? Yeah. I I think it's helpful to be able to keep the tissue where it is. I mean, there was always this thing of, and again, the burn unit, they love to strip people down and you say, well, is there really evidence? Oh yes. It's very, you know, and other people will say, no, no, you leave it on, you leave it on. You say, well, you're leaving it on. Aren't you leaving lots of chemicals in there that shouldn't be there that are going to be making it worse? They go, oh, no, no, you have to leave it on. Um, so, you know, you do what you, whatever you think is right. And, and you know, you follow your patients. It, it shouldn't be, I think, a revolving door of, you know, it, say you're in a, ho- a teaching hospital, for example, or, you know, including some uh, community stuff, but they're going to end up at the teaching hospital. It, it's nice if there's two or three people now I will say though one of the the rare meetings that we actually had with a group of burn doctors, um, there was a guy who wrote something was published, and then we were in the meeting and he 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 says it's he doesn't do that. I said wait a minute, but you published this thing. 
yeah, I know, but I don't know if I really it really works. I, you know, just because stuff is published, there's other words that sound like published um, that that mean as much. You know, it 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 just because something was published doesn't mean anything really, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's this opium that we're all brought into that um, to, to to go to a nice town uh, for a nice meal to talk about the clinical trial results, which were clinical trial results. They were there for getting approval, not for treat, teaching people, not for, uh, not for making people world. better, not for mm-hmm. real life. They're infants. Yeah. They were just born a minute ago. And now, oh, this one was better than that one. That's nonsense. It's really hard. Although I will say we have a local um, a plastic surgeon who did an ICU fellowship and has a significant interest in severe cutaneous reactions. And he's been using a lot of the synthetic bio brain um, that I will say for a couple of patients has really been um, crazy. Like they've gone from being hemodynamically unstable and really sick, go to the OR, slap it on. And then the next, you know, the next day are like stable and that's wild. Absolutely. And, And I know, you know, when we were teaching one time, I was giving a talk on legal issues at the American Academy, uh, because I thought people need to know about some of these things. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the eyes is one example. You're going to get sued and you're going to get sued, sued and sued. So if if you have access to good membrane like that, um, I mean, it really does make a difference uh, in all aspects of healing. And and, and those things, you know, I, well, we don't have the budget for it. You get, get the budget for it. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, it doesn't have to be sitting there waiting uh, like you're um, – COVID test uh, kit somewhere, you know, right. it's got to be, you know, something that's real time that says, okay, we need it now. And, and it always just t- cut up tissue. It's, it's special stuff. So no, absolutely. Those things are really making, I think make a big difference and, and give you, you can say, well, it didn't work in the last person. Well, that doesn't mean anything. And maybe there are things you could learn this time that'll, you know, you'll mm-hmm. look at it again and go, oh, you know why? I think I know why it didn't work. Yeah, totally. Beyond the cutaneous things that obviously we're going to tell people, you know, your nails might come back, your hair might come back, you know, your pigment might come back, you got to use sun protection, blah, blah, blah. I think the bigger impact for a lot of patients is more of that, like, you know, anxiety, mental, almost like PTSD type of reaction. Like, what are your, how do you, how do you approach that? Do you have any actual, you know, are there's like a, you mentioned a couple things about groups, but like, is there somewhere else that we could direct our patients to? Well, well, well things like SJS Canada. So, you know, if people go in and they have regular online meetings, you know, and I think every quarter, uh, I've been doing it, doing it for 11 years and I, I'm not doing it anymore, but uh, good people are. And so there's a lot of good stuff there and different perspectives. The patient's perspective is always given as well. They give a talk about what it meant and, um, and, it, and it really is impactful. There are U.S. meetings that people can sign in and, uh, again, those are really good. Some people don't want to hear about it, and I can understand mm-hmm. that. I've been through that hell. I don't. I don't want to ever think about that again. I'm okay now. So, and that's okay too. You know, there's differences. The thing I liked about seeing people after they were discharged was one, they weren't thrown to the wolves, and 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 two, that you know, I got to. I said, well, so tell me, you know, what are your concerns? They tell you, and then you tell them what their concerns really are, and they go, yeah, I just, I couldn't even say it. I didn't mm-hmm. want to say that. Um, and and, and you, you hear what it's doing in their life. 
not past, but present and future. And, and that, that family, again, was one of them where you think about it. Sometimes it's just one or two people. Sometimes people don't want to come back. Um, one advantage of having them come back is if they're educated, they're not going to be calling your office every day to say, oh, I have a spot behind my ear, you know, that kind of thing. Worried that it's coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and some of them are, are truly have, uh, they'll, I've had people who say, look, I'm obsessive compulsive. I, I know I'm going to do this and say, just email me. So I love email for that. Email me because I can respond when I want to. And I have what they said in writing and I have what I said in writing. So yes. that's where email, email or whatever sort of, you know, thing, I don't want to do it on the phone. You know, like, oh, well, and then this happened and that happened. And then they send you a picture and everything just looks like a day old pizza. You know, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But again, you have to protect yourself and, and think about, no, that's not what I said. Here's, here I have, this is what I said. And, uh, you know, the protective association will be very happy that you did that. And so, yes. you, so it, it is hard to know once you lose that control. Do they have to come back every month? People don't want to. It's a reminder. And they're coming back to their hospital where it was hell. And, and, and so generally, people don't want to do that. The virtual possibilities, um, you know, you could have an Atlantic Canada, you know, sort of uh, group, you know, and, and do it, you know, every six months or something. Get a, <laughs> It's like there would probably only be like five people in the group. Okay. Um, no, because but- I think, you know, we have a couple per year. Um and more, like I said, I've seen more with Lamotrigine, um, it, mainly not for neurologic um, reasons either, unfortunately, often as like sort of an adjunct uh, psychiatric yeah. medication. But um, the other thing that I find is a challenge for people, and I don't know if psychology would help with this, but many of my patients are then worried to take any medicine going yeah. forward. And so I think this is maybe where like in an ideal world, and you can go, listen, you took allopurinol, you have this genetic tendency, we prove that if we don't give you that drug, you're going to be okay. I just know it doesn't exist for everything. And so sometimes, you know, um, getting people to take the other medicines they need to stay healthier is a challenge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, the other thing you could do, and this, I'm not standing behind this, but, you know, you put it in a cream form or something and you say, look, just rub this on your arm every day for three days. And if it turns mm-hmm. red and they get worried, you say, okay, not, but you know, I, we, I don't think we have answers to that. So we've got yeah. a little bit, a bit creative and a bit saying, well, what if we did this? Would that help make you feel better? Uh, now, some people say, I don't want to hear the outcome or what if it makes it flare up? And, uh, and so I could see that too. So anything that's going to have active drug, if you will, um, probably will, you're not going to win, but, it, but it is hard. We're getting, so one of the things with SGS Canada was a guy out in BC who looked into, we hooked him into this, uh, and, and he's a, a genius on the genetics. And, and from what he's been doing with all the stuff on the genetics, he, he's saying it's going to be $25 for a test. It's not going to be something that's going to break the bank wow. to do a bank of testing. And so you can say this. And frankly, if you were a sibling of somebody who had something, you would you know, want to say the same thing. You'd say, mm-hmm. well, can you test me? They go, yeah, sure, we can test you. Um, and, and just try and understand. Then you have somebody who has to explain what the testing means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does make a big difference. And there are uh, options uh, that are out there. And that's where SGS Canada is sort of good, too. First of all, it's in the Canadian context. And, right. and, and, and secondly, 
it, it takes into account that there are people all over a big country, uh, and, and it's uh, and, and it is it's hard to uh, give them the best advice. And, and people think, well, I'll go online. What are you going to look for? You know, if you say, you know, you know, do I have Stevens Johnson syndrome? <laughs> WebMD will say yes. Yeah, and uh, so you know, th- th- there's got to be better ways that we can do with the, the tech we have. But but of course, we've we've talked about a lot of highlights of things that can work. Uh, but yeah. it is it's a huge emotional problem. And you know what? When we have these videos with the SJS Canada people and they're telling their story of what happened, some are Americans, some are Canadians. Uh, but when they tell their story, uh, a lot of people will sign off. They don't want to hear their mm-hmm. story. They don't yeah. want to hear it because it brings back such bad memories and, and they don't want to hear it. So that's fine. If only two people do it and then we do it, it, it it's almost like Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, Mary, thank you so much for sharing. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can really feel your pain. Or, and, it's, and it's very genuine, very genuine. And all these people are survivors. And, and spouses and other family members uh, who are also there who yeah. just say, no, no, this has really helped mom a lot, uh, you know, ever since she went through this or he went through this. So there, there's lots of stuff. There's a social environment around it. If you want mm-hmm. to think of circles, at the outer circle is this whole social thing about yeah. going out, meeting people. What if they ask you, what happened to you? You know, these kinds of things. They all yeah. matter. And, and, and then people share their advice, which is great. I say, oh, yeah, I, I have that. I work in a bakery and people say, oh, what happened to you? They say, I got too close to the bread once or whatever. <laughs> Who knows? You know, I don't know what yeah. they do. But, you know, you have to try and move on and, 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 and see. You know, you want to let this, this beast take over your life and always think, 100%. why did I take that drug? Why did I take that drug? Everybody's got a story. So, yeah. You know, yeah. Um. So I, I'm cognizant of your time and I'm going to wrap it up, but I just want to ask one more question. You've brought up a couple of resources that I think are great for patients and residents. So that SJS Canada, um, LIT. And so if the residents aren't aware of this, L-I-T-T-S um, goes through basically every and any drug eruption or cutaneous outcome from any drug ever in a book. So that's great. Do you have any other um, resources or something where you say, the resident just really should read this or do this or, I mean, beyond seeing a patient ideally, but anything else you'd advise before I um, release you of your time? Okay. Well, I'll just say about Lit and thank you for that. But for the Lit book, so now um, th- there is still the book, which has mm-hmm. the, the most common, but it also comes with uh, online updates. And so, you know, you get these updates maybe every month or two um, and it's a whole bunch of drugs and you know, it's it's like too much, you know, to look at. But when you're when you're looking at it for a specific reason, and you say, "Well, tell me what are all the drugs that cause Stevens Johnson T N?" You mm-hmm. see that. Tell me all the drugs that cause this. Tell me the interactions. Um, and we have a genetic table uh, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. That's part of the print thing. But when you look at that, you'll see there's some that are really well defined, but others that aren't. And Dr. Elizabeth Phillips is is one of the people who's helping to keep this up to date. So we get to see the genetics there. So there is a lot there. Okay. And, um, and, and again, a lot of people are going to see this and go, I, I have not seen this before. You know, it's, it's, it is hard. Um, it, it, in terms of some of the um, things like you were talking about the psychological issues, then, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, speaking to the psychiatry people uh, when mm-hmm. the meeting was in Toronto, they had their big psychiatry meeting. 
and um, I, I gave a, a you know a talk about it. And 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 the point I made to them though was a bit different. It was about somebody takes uh, lamotrigine, and uh, even if they take it in a slow thing, they start to get a rash. And I said, getting a rash is not going to turn into TEN. Mm-hmm. It is not. They don't have lymphadenopathy. They don't have fever. They don't have red eyes. They don't have anything you can think of. It's not mm-hmm. going to turn into it. So at the end of the meeting, uh, 400 people run up to the stage and uh, individually want to know <laughs> how they know where they can do that and where is that published. Well, it isn't published. But you know what? I, I, you know, a rabbit doesn't turn into a chicken. It, it just doesn't. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a stage one type of thing, that's what it's going to be. Has it yeah. ever happened? Yeah. Sometimes people have had rebounds that are worse than what they had in the first place. And then that suddenly poisons the whole pool. Well, it doesn't. The point yeah. is it happened. And, uh, but the psychiatrist wanted like in writing that because they say the lamictal was the best thing they ever took for their disease. And, and not only, it's just that if, if people will feel okay, you know, uh, you know, that's the thing. People get on some psychiatric drugs. They feel they're on a psychiatric drug. If they get on a drug for their mental issues, but feel normal, that's mm-hmm. huge, huge. They don't want to lose it. So they need somebody. So, you know, they don't want to have to, I don't have the psychiatrist fighting with somebody else, but you know what? There, there are opportunities there. And I, you know, I just hope we can even this out all over for all of these types of cases to give people better outcomes, but also to be, get better screening, which is yeah. a shameful thing that we don't have screening basically in North America. Um, it, it's after the fact. And when the uh, people who do it say to me, well, you already know the answer. I said, no, but I don't know what's going to happen with the family. And I need to be able to have proper screening. Um, it's okay, fine. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, uh, we tried to do it with a meeting with internists in Toronto, and we did it as an exam, and then they got a credit for it. And they said, this was great, and I think it's changed nothing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's a rare, bad disease, and uh, people just don't get it. I, I totally agree. And listen, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Lots of pearls. Great to see you again. Neil. Thank you. It's great to see you too. You take care. You too. Thanks again, Neil. And thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and write a review where you listen. It helps others find these interviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out JCMS author interviews hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.